Hi everyone, welcome to Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan, and today I'm talking with educator Chris Somerville, based in Shiga, Japan. Chris Somerville in Shiga, Japan. Thank you so much for joining, Chris. My pleasure. It、uh, looks like a lovely day out on your porch today. What, it,、yeah. what can you see? Well, I'm looking straight at a 1,200 meter mountain with the sun just disappearing behind it. And I'm looking at my garden,、uh, the pond I made a few years ago where the wisteria, Fuji, are just blooming、uh, too early.、They're, and my、uh, favorite wildflower, Shaga, is there. And my white cat rescued from the local station.、Uh, Stella is sitting here wishing the sun would come back. Rice fields, <laughs>、uh, mountains, lots of colors of green、uh, on the, all the different natural forest on the mountains. Yeah, that, that's a, quite a bit going on here. <laughs> Hi, thanks for joining today. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com. And you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash jjwalsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Ah, sounds lovely. Now you're in Shiga, and so far in this Seeking Sustainability Live series, we have talked to a few people in Shiga, and I visited、uh, Chuck Kayser, who I know you visited his farm. Yeah. I visited him last autumn. So、uh, you know Chuck. You did an article about Chuck? Yeah, just uh, uh, in the re- reborn Kyoto Visitor's Guide that started again after a nine month hiatus、uh, just last month. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's doing a great job. And you were talking about. Um, something that we talked about as well, of course, is how the number of organic farmers, of course, is very few in Japan, but、mm. the number of farmers in general is really drastically decreasing. So、yes. it's a real food security issue, isn't it, in Japan? Yes, I mean, 60% of their food, as you know, is imported.、Um, however, I would say that there is great signs of hope、um, both here and in. Uh, around Japan, that there is slowly, I mean, not enough, but a slow return of、um, people, younger people, 30s, in、uh, returning to the joys of farming, especially organic or natural farming, doing it how they used to do it. I, I'm a member of three groups,、uh, four groups now,、um, and we're all growing rice in different places. And One of the groups that's closest to me is about 25 young couples, all in their late 20s, early 30s, and they bring their children. And we, the far, young farmer, owns about four or five fields, and we have lovely days every couple of weeks, whatever stage of the 88 times the farmer's supposed to visit his land, basically turning it into a fun working day. I mean, one of the issues is that, you know, farmers now they're working as salarymen or salarywomen.、Uh, they can't make enough living from the farming. And they're doing it by themselves with machinery, with all the pesticides that they're told to put on by Nokio. And it's become、yeah. a, a non real. That was a real shock in the article.、Um, you were talking about. Uh, Japan is number nine in terms of pesticide use, but when you look at land mass, you realize it must be using a lot more because the size of the land compared to the size of the first eight is a lot smaller. Exactly.、Um, that's really depressing. And the farmers don't, many of the farmers don't want to do it. I mean, we're farming, growing rice up at a thousand year old village where all the farmers are growing and they, they're completely aware of the.、Um, Problem. However, especially with vegetables, because、uh, people want to have their vegetables looking completely perfect, and because they have to obey Nokio, 
to sell their vegetables, they're told to put all these pesticides on. Farmers always have separate mm -hmm. fields. They wouldn't, they don't eat the vegetables yeah. that they're selling. Yeah. I I often meet um farmers who if they're selling their vegetables or even rice, mm. um, they are using pesticides. And then if they're growing it for their family, they're doing it organically. And I I always think that's so interesting. Yes, exactly. I always tell my students that. Yeah. And you also mentioned um, 85% of farmers in Japan are doing it as a second job. Right, right. Yeah. That's wild. Well, yeah, it's because, you know, we, we, you know, what it's all upside down, isn't it, really? You know, I mean, the people who are providing us with our food, which we need to live, um, are getting such a poor income from their growing our food and everybody wants to get cheap vegetables so they don't doesn't uh, encourage farmers to uh, grow organically of course the michinoeki are growing and very very popular and uh, farmers markets in a different style community so there is an op a niche that's opening up more and more to allow farmers to miss out the nokio supermarket connection and grow yuki saibai at least less chemical vegetables or organic and sell it at the michinoeki directly oh we have someone joining us from copenhagen thanks for joining donald it's nice to see a very international copenhagen. audience here on haps <laughs> <laughs> um another person who i've talked to in the series uh actually the first person in shiga mm. is stuart galbraith do you know stuart Stuart, I haven't seen Stuart in years. What were you talking with him about? Well, I found him because he was doing a documentary hmm. about uh, foreign residents in Shiga who were renovating old houses. Oh. And he he's a filmmaker and he was yes. he was renovating his own house. Yes. And then he introduced me to Chuck. And he introduced me to Ian Davey and oh. Mike Barr. Oh. And uh, yeah, so it was a great connection. And you live right next to Lake Biwa, which I believe is where Ian Davey is as well, right? Yeah, I live uh, I live about two kilometers from Ian. He lives at Hira Station. I live at uh, Shiga Station, Shiga no Shiga, or near there. And um, he's we've known each other for about 20 years because of course we're both teaching sustainability and and his daughter asia is my daughter sitara's best friend and they've known each other since they're little girls yes so we yeah. also have and john spiri uh, yeah i just i also talked to john spiri oh, yes. and he he said he said he he lives right above where ian davy is so i think and, you guys must all be in the same area well, we're all about, we're far enough away that we can do our own thing because we love being here. We love, we really love each other and we share a lot, but we basically have a lot of things we like to do on our own. So we don't, we're not on each other's doorsteps all the time. John moved here because he came out to visit me on one glorious day and I gave him a bicycle tour of the local area and he got pulled over going back to Gifu. Uh, 20 kilometers faster than he should have been, 100 and maybe 100, I don't know, I shouldn't tell him that, um, because he was so excited to tell his wife he'd found the perfect place to live. So Wow, well, that's this, exciting. Well, this area is very special. Uh, we didn't know it when we came, it but this, the Ainu used to live here. Um, it, the nearest town is Wani, and that is not actually a Japanese word. It's an Ainu word. This west side of the lake is the very least populated. It's the only area between um, Wani and Omimaiko where the mountains are really close to Lake Biwa. And it was considered too sacred by the Japanese to live. So they all used to live on the east side of the lake. And they found maybe 100,000 jizo, uh, you know, the figures that, uh, that the Japanese used to row across the lake pray to the Kamisama of our area where the Ainu were still here and leave the Jizo uh, as an offering. So it's a very, very unique and 20 sacred groves in our area that have been sacred for 
thousands of years, so many little shrines. Um, it's a very, very special uh, stretch of Lake Biwa. It's so beautiful there. And um, I visited uh, a shrine that had a Tori gate, a f floating Tori gate opposite yes. side yes. of the road in the water. That was so yes. beautiful. Yes, and Biwa looks it looks like the ocean because it's so big you have waves um you really can't see across it's it's its own water mass is it yes. the biggest lake in yes Japan, it's maybe? the biggest lake and one of the 10 oldest lakes in the world so it has many many endemic species the locals funny you say that the locals call it uh biwakai as in biwako ocean biwako oh, sea yeah. I yeah, I always that. thought it would be boring living near a lake. I wanted to live near the sea, you know. But yeah. this, uh. this lake, she is Mother Lake. She Mother Lake Biwa. She is never boring. Just like a, a changing. Um, well, no, that'll sound sexist. No, anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I see that you, you do beach cleaning sometimes. Uh, we're doing beach cleanups. Uh, we try to do once a month. Uh, next to a river in Hiroshima or, or the beaches right. when we can. And even though we're we're taking from a much bigger water area that, that passes down and your lake is contained, you still have a lot of the same garbage problems with a lot of plastic. It's crazy. Yeah, I think, well, actually, to tell you the truth, Lake Biwa 25 years ago was incredibly polluted. They started getting red tides the lake was dying. There has been a, thanks to our governor, a wonderful woman uh, who was our governor for eight years. They've really, really done a good job of protecting the lake. You can even drink out of the lake directly if you want to uh, in our area. But yes, I mean, it's more like, you know, as always, uh, people who come out to enjoy the area and then they think they're never going to come back again. And they don't want to bother with their garbage so they kind of leave it on the beach it's it's not so much washing up on the beach like on the in in okinawa and the yayama islands it's being left uh especially cigarette butts people just think that sand is an ashtray and um pet bottles and cans and uh, plastic as always yeah yeah you you had a a bit of information on one of your uh, essays that you sent me about the biodegradable time yes. that it takes for a cigarette butt or a plastic oh. bottle. Isn't it crazy? Because we don't really know because plastic is such a new problem that we say maybe 400 years, but we haven't had plastic <laughs> for 400 years yet. Exactly. So we don't know. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. It, it's, I, it's just really scientific tests that have, they put that kind of pressure or whatever on it that might in, uh, have. And anyway, most of it is breaking down into microplastics and is being digested by people, uh, by fish, by uh, birds, and of course also uh, by us. Yeah. 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 Uh, you had a really beautiful quote. I love this. We are all on this beautiful and confusing path of life together, mm. trying to find happiness for ourselves, our family and our friends. When we expend, extend that to creating happiness for all living things in our surroundings, our environment and on our planet, we come to the marvelous realization that they are all connected. We are all at different stages on the path to this realization and in finding ways to act. It is not dependent on age or culture, but on the relationship we cultivate with everything around us. And this relationship must be one of love, generosity, and compassion. There is no room for anger or criticism. This is a path of acceptance and doing our best to live our truths as we find them in the hope that it will inspire others to do the same. That is beautiful. I love wow, it. Did I did I write that? <laughs> you, wrote, you wrote that. Wow, that's pretty good. I think you wrote that. You pretty sound, good. You make it sound much better than I, well, I. The thing is, is whenever I do anything for my whole life, uh, writing or living or doing, I, I I really don't reflect or look back, or I'm not a nostalgic person. But so I'm always surprised when I find something I wrote or somebody I said or a picture that you know. 
So yeah, thank you for reading that. Gosh, <laughs> nice to know I, I was so inspired after my beach cleanup. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been, we're going to talk about some of your lesson plans that you were using in mm. India when you were teaching there. Uh, you're using now in Japan. You've got some great ideas for how to connect students to their environment and get them thinking about climate change. Um, but it's, you know, you've been doing it for a long time and I'm reading <laughs> your articles. Your articles from early 2000s or 2010, which seems like a long time ago, but you're saying the exact same things that I'm saying now, Exactly. but, well. but you've been saying them for almost 30 years. It's amazing. Yeah, I've been, I realized that when um, I, I just went to one of my three boxes that I own in my life um, with stuff and because my daughter is starting at 15 to show some interest in her father's past <laughs> and of course you I thought I should send you some stuff and I was reading just scanning a few lines of each thing and I was realizing goodness me you know I've been saying the same things for you know 35 years or more actually um, when I was graduated from UC Davis in 1983 I was the coordinator of the nuclear freeze group during Reagan's time, and I was chosen to be the commencement day speaker. Luckily, had a chance in front of 13,000 people to speak for five minutes. And my title of my speech was Social and Global Awareness in a Changing World. And I was just amazed that uh, I guess it's been that long since I kind of started having these thoughts, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, we have a question from Dan on YouTube. Thanks, Dan. He says, why do you think the organic movement has been so influenced by the work of Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful? Why do I think it's been so influenced? That's, that's what he says. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one, because it's a very readable book. Uh, I mean, it's like um, Fukuoka's One Seed Revolution. Uh, that has influenced natural farming around the world so much. One, because it's personable, it's readable, it makes sense, and it's spiritual at the same time, Schumacher's book and Fukuoka's book. It, it, it gives you a sense of, I mean, it just is so clear and, and obvious. Um, yeah, yeah I would, that would be my answer. Yeah. yeah, there's there's also another author. I of course didn't have a chance to talk to Fukuoka Sensei in Shikoku, I believe, is where the farm is. Yes. But I believe he he has other people taking over now and following his same way. I would love to visit and talk to them, um, maybe after coronavirus. But somebody I have also been in touch with in the states um, is the author of Abundance of Less. Have you heard of that book? Oh, not more of not more is less abundance of less no, nice. the like abundance the of less lovely and uh i hope i can get him on sometime he's got some oh, be beautiful great. stories from people living in tokushima and other parts of shikoku and basically living with very little financial needs just living from the earth living from their community and i really i love those concepts it's beautiful well, he started with a great title, The Abundance of Less, yes. Yeah. Well, if you ever do come down, I can connect you with a very special man, Yoshinori Kawaguchi, who has become very well known in Japan in the last 20 years. He was my doctor, and I was doing natural farming with him when I lived in the temple in Nara. And then he was just doing it locally and having people come to his, that was back in 1991. Um, now, of course, he's known all over Japan, and he's in his 70s now, um, asked to give talks. So, again, he was just ahead of his time, like Fukuoka. He actually went to study with Fuku went to Fukuoka, and basically his rice crop failed three years in a row after coming back from Fukuoka, and his family was very upset. And then he realized that he was trying to do the same methods that Fukuoka had done in Shikoku, whereas he was in Nara. So oh. he's, he adjusted to that by getting to know the wind and the rain and the, and then 
he started becoming successful. So that's a yeah. localization of... It's um, true, isn't it? Uh, yeah. we, we have a local farmer in the Hiroshima area, Thomas Klepfer, uh, who's doing a great job with no-till farming. He learned a lot from uh, Fukuoka Sensei as well. Um, and he always says that you have to do trial and error for where mm -hmm. your farm is. And it's very different from other people around Japan even. Yes, exactly. Um, Donald, Donald has a question. Have you seen the documentary Seaspiracy? Very clear answers about plastic sources found in the ocean. Thanks for your question, Donald. Actually, we were talking about that yesterday mm. uh, with Marik because she is studying sharks and the sea creatures in Japan, and she had a really interesting take on that. So if you have a chance, maybe... um watch that one but yeah it, there was a lot of uh interesting takeaways about the plastic in our oceans from that documentary hey bringing up the discussion the more discussions the better i say <laughs> a lot of, we're all connecting on the same things i about documentaries my favorite documentaries of last year that i shared with all my students of course is tomorrow which is an excellent film made by the French. It's available for rent for a few dollars on a number of platforms. Uh, I love to see the direction of documentaries that are being made now, which show the problem, uh, for the problems for about 10 minutes, and then the rest of the documentary is showing all the wonderful things people are doing for the solutions. The other one, of course, is uh, Kiss, the, uh, uh, Kiss the Ground. They were the two best about um, re no-till regenerative farming and pulling the carbon back out of the soil, uh, pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere where it's our enemy and back into the soil where it's our friend. So Kiss the Ground and Tomorrow would be two wonderful video uh, documentaries from last year I'd recommend. Wonderful. I haven't seen those. Um, I like if the documentary is not all doom and gloom, yeah. if it offers proactive things we can do yeah. and some innovation which is happening. That's what I'm really trying to do with this series. I'm it. trying I'm trying to show that there are options available and that we can make better choices. And please don't give up. <laughs> You're doing it very well, JJ. And that is Thank the you. role of all of us now is the sad thing, of course, is that in Japan, I mean, not only Japan, but because environmental education is so ignored, I tell my students, my 18, 19, 20-year-old students, that what I have to share with them in my classes is, is generally compared to in India or Europe or many places, what young people are now learning and have been learning for at least a decade when they are 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, in different ways. And so sadly, as we know, when people don't think there's a problem, they're not looking for solutions. And when something has always been done one way, and, you know, again, I don't want to sound like I'm um, prejudiced or anything, but I have found that people tend to follow the mainstream more here. They don't, they don't like getting lost. They don't want to, they don't do just, they don't go down that side alley. So finding all the hundreds and thousands, as you're showing, of Japanese people and non who are doing wonderful things, um, because they don't know there's a problem, because they don't know the alternatives are so fun and so creative and so dynamic and so, you know, every, you know, um, they think of picking up gomi on a beach as, or farming as being tai hen men dok sai, but... Yeah. So that's right. Um, I absolutely hundred thousand percent agree. And um, it's also a wonderful part of branding. It's a it's a wonderful thing for a company to do yeah. to be more proactive in their sustainability. And then the customer is more loyal. They think they're a better company. They're going to choose them over others. They're going to pay more for products. There's so many wins along the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's speaking of teaching, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, um, yeah. you you have so many great ideas for mm. how to engage with students in the classroom and get them to think about sustainability. Let's talk about your example from Green Teacher uh, that you sent me. Yeah. So fun. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were in India, tell me about the treasure hunt game. I love it. Oh, they, they love Well, everybody loves that. You can, even Basically, what I did, we had the idea of um, going around the campus in India in the mountains of Maharashtra and choosing places that had either a positive or negative effect on climate and putting little clues there on a p- hidden like un- on a xerox machine under the top under the lid or on a tree on the back of the tree that would take you to the next clue with a little rhyme something that wasn't obvious and basically the the students <laughs> were released they were supposed to do first and second periods um but they were so excited after i'd announced it at the morning gathering that the the teachers let them go and um basically i think there was about 20 places and they had to one find all the places and then in the assembly we had a winner then they had to then with the whole class we had to say what they had to say whether the place they had found had a positive effect or a negative effect on climate and uh why so that's basically it in a nutshell yeah and they love it (laughs) sounded so fun yeah Yeah. so you just you had hints that were taped to different parts of the campus yeah hidden kind of all over the place um these are some of your examples of the hints for example i stand with seven arms between the junior and seniors watching the seasons change nice that was the first one i think make it easy there was the junior dormitories and the senior dormitories because it was a boarding school and there was a tree that had seven arms between them and hidden underneath one of the branches was oh no that was the first one we announced that's right and then when they got to there if they found it the next uh, under the branch was the place where many colors meet yeah that was in the art room Ha-ha. oh these are yeah. tricky yeah yeah they are but those were clever they I was brought to India because India actually was the first country in the world. You may be surprised that the Supreme Court in 1993 ordered that uh, environmental education had to be a part of from primary school up. And they didn't have any idea in India what environmental education was. They thought it was environmental science. And of course, the difference, of course, is environmental to me is the environmental science studies the impact of uh, pollution and poisons and etc whereas my job uh, for over 30 years as an environmental educationist is to show the connections between our daily lives um, and environmental issues and hunt, uh, opposite the connections between environmental problems or good things and social the social impact so all I look on is, I always say what I do in my classes, uh, well, what the students do, I just kind of am a conductor, is um, show them gradually the web of connections, the web of connections. Show them how we are connected with the environment and how it's connected with us, which seems so obvious when you live in the countryside, but when you live in, um, you know, the city. So when I... In the 90s, I had a book published by Macmillan, and the title of that was Looking Back, Moving Forward, an Environmental Course for the Next Generation. The reason I gave it that title was because we're always looking forward what we can develop and what we can improve. But if we look back, especially in Japan, as we know, Satoyama, Motainai, all the concepts were there already. And as you know, the young people in Japan now are taking those concepts and merging them with um, what fits the modern age. That's what we try and do in the Kyoto Visitor's Guide is with young, you know, people who are taking the traditional crafts of Japan, following the traditional methods and like and in farming or whatever and developing them into the to fit into our modern, hopefully getting to be sustainable society. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. And a lot of the concepts from this game, even though it was a long time ago, you were getting the students to go around their campus to look at specific examples and to think of, is there a better way to do this, which is more environmentally friendly? Yeah. So, for example, uh, even looking at the cars in the car park, is there are there more environmentally friendly cars than the ones that are here? Uh, looking at the lights, could we improve on how much energy is used in the lights? I mean, these yeah. are all things we can apply with students right now, even exactly. 20 years later, right? Exactly, yes. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. And making that practical aspect. And then at the end of the article, you were saying for the rest of the year, you had students who were more conscious of their decisions. And that is magic. That is where you want to get in yeah. education when yeah. you're talking about sustainability, right? Yeah, yeah. And they love it. They love it because they, they're so happy. I mean, these were from... Uh, eight years old, uh, seven, you know, six years old to 16 years old. And they were coming up with ideas and, you know, their teachers, uh, most of the teachers took it quite well, were actually behind the students. The students were ahead of their teachers, which is exactly how it should be. <laughs> yeah, if they're allowed great. to be inspired, you know, bring us old teachers along, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what we want. We want yeah. the young people to take the lead. Yeah. Um, we we've got a couple uh, comments. Chuck says, uh, "Seed: The Untold Story" is a great documentary as well. Uh, Wendy Thanks. says she's looking for tomorrow and can't find it on Vimeo or Netflix. Is no. there another source? Yeah. For tomorrow? If you just if you just type in tomorrow and it'll take you to their. Um, you know their web page and then it's i it's it's rentable on th three or four platforms i think google play is that a platform yeah they i think google play they have it for about you can rent it for about um 300 yen uh yeah i ended up buying it because i rented it so many times and i thought well just have it you know so it is there if you just type in tomorrow and go to their site you'll see okay. where it's available all right, great. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, and Wendy has added a link if anybody wants to see seedthemovie.com and oh, then nice. you can find it there. Thank you so much, Wendy. Um, another activity you did, which I think you could definitely still do today, is mm. uh, the Echo Products Evaluating Game. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's fun. I still do it all the time because, you know, I'm buying a lot of Echo. And, Echo products um, and being given. So I always keep the wrapping, I keep the boxes, I keep, and you know, for students, you know, and then I take them into the classroom and I have the activity. I, I can't go into it now, it, it's, it's on in Green Teacher, but basically for Japanese students to see all this information about no animal testing made with FSC wood. Um, no, you know, uh, whatever, all the information, they love it. And it gets them to really read and uh, on the tea or cookies or toothpaste or shampoos. They're, you know, if they ever look at labels, usually, I don't know, it's I, how much is it, you know? <laughs> so for them to know that these products that are available now more in Japan with no animal testing or organic, um, we also have the echo labels activity where I give them all out a sheet of echo labels and then I have the what they mean mixed up and they have to in their groups I connect the the, the meaning with the label so they become familiar with echo labels so lots and lots of things like that yeah. Yeah, really good. And then you also address greenwashing, um, yeah. which is very important because yeah. even even though some of the labels look like they're very environmentally friendly, it is very important to be a discerning consumer, especially these days, right? Yeah. Um, what we do is the students who are in my sustain my seminar. Uh, I don't do it with my regular classes because it might be asking too much. Is they go onto the website of the companies and look at how transparent they are. And then 
we, you know, for writing practice, we compose, uh, they compose, and I help them, uh, a, an email to the companies asking questions that they have to get more information and stuff. So, you know, to get through the greenwashing, uh, they do do much more transparency check. Because as you know, again, I don't know if this is a commonality, maybe I've been in Japan too long, but there's not a lot of trust here um, with websites. Um, students always have a sense that they're going to be cheated or, you know, even signing up for Ecosia, which is one of the first things I ask my students to do, change the language from I'll Google it to Ecosia it um, as their search engine. Um, they, I do take the time for them to look at all the information Ecosia puts up so they don't worry that they're, even though their teacher is recommending it, that they're being diverted into something that's not trustworthy. And I think that's good, you know, but not too much because if we're distrusting everything, you know, it gives excuses not to donate some money to a environmental or, or social group. It gives us an excuse not to um, be active, um, go out and march or, or go to a demonstration. So I get, I think we all have to think critically, but at the same time, we need to trust that many companies are doing their best to move in that direction and, uh, and NGOs and that, you know, we can, we're in a position we can help them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so similar in so many aspects of, of seeking sustainability in your life or business. Um, you have to always be taking in information. Yeah. You have to be testing it. So, yeah. for example, there is a very popular chain of convenience stores, which has been kind of greenwashing. Yes, I would say greenwashing, um, <laughs> saying that they're using a more environmentally friendly type of plastic on their rice balls. So I bought yeah. one. I put it in my Great. garden for a month. I kept some in water. None of it decomposed at all. Oh. And there's very little information. Nobody, no third party is testing it. So I'm pretty convinced it's not any more uh, environmentally friendly than normal plastic. You know, so yeah. you're testing these things for yourselves. Yeah. It's, it's anecdotal evidence. It's not scientific evidence. But there is nobody testing it scientifically either right, so right, right. you know it's you have to be kind of engaged with what you're you're believing in yeah as my well. rule of thumb exactly like yours is that you know it may not always be right but just try and support you know convenience stores are out in my life almost except when my son wants to go and get a uh, ice um you know there's always alternative places, local places, and also small companies uh, on, you know, maybe instead of buying from Amazon a new book, you go, you buy it from the publisher. A uh, friend of mine just had a book, pub, or a friend of a book on Lafcadio Hearn, one of the original, and it's published by a small press in England. And yes, Amazon will get it to you in three days, and the small press in England will get it to you in if you buy it overseas, of course, if it's available in English in Japan, of course, get it in Japan. But, you know, basically, you know, I try just to support the smaller companies online, the local companies uh, in my area and not go to any of the, the, the big boys, you know. Yeah. And another great conversation I've had with students um, with some success is talking about investing in what you buy. And thinking of what you buy as something you want to use for a very long time. Nice, yeah. So don't just think of buying the cheapest thing, thinking of buying something of a little bit more expensive, but higher quality, and you're going to use it for a longer time. And you can have some really interesting discussions with students exactly. when they look at things that they've bought and used for a short time versus things they buy and use for a very long time. You get some great reports or presentations from very that good, i found very good yeah i think yeah exactly i'm where you are i always say 
one of the major, we all know this, but one of the major transitions we have to return to, not move on to, is quality rather than quantity. I mean, I'm a great lover of, of Jibiru, craft beer, and I always, and fair trade chocolate, and I always tell my students and friends, you know, that if you're, you know, you have a couple of Jibirus in a whole night, it's enough. Just enjoy it a little. But if you're drinking a rubbishy, super dry or something, you know, you're drinking like five or six, you know. So it is uh, moving on to quality, not quantity. And that's a tough one for many people. Yeah, getting more mm. for less is kind of an instinct. <laughs> it's think. it's hard. It's a really hard shift in ideology, right? Uh, like yeah. even even for me buying an electric car, it was a big decision, but I I really didn't want to buy gas anymore. Right. And I want to use it for a very long time. We have solar panels on our roof, you know, so you you make these decisions um how is it going to play out over time? Not just right. how expensive is it right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's much, uh, you know, this may sound gender, gender, uh, whatever, but I think that tends to be the way women think more naturally than men. Um, you know, you, I always, you know, basically women, you know, are giving birth, their, their, their priority is life, sustaining their children, sustaining their family. As we know from looking at the governments, and I mean, I'm, this is a generality, and I know it's a lot of exceptions. You know, men tend to be in a male, let's say a male side of us tends to be much more seeking immediate and um, short term and, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's, you know, we just have to mature off maybe uh, I'm stepping out a bit here, a female instinct and think of nurturing, sustaining, long terming rather than now immediate gratification yes <laughs> yeah well i i think coronavirus has been a good reminder of that for people right yes like yes. how how do we get this money from the government how do we put it to use most people are putting it straight to buying food and uh supporting their kids you know so you realize where your money goes when you really need it it's very yeah. interesting yeah. Um, we had a, a comment from Dan on YouTube. Do you find B Corp movement is tra transparent or find it to be greenwashing because their scoring system doesn't give much detail? I don't know much about B Corp. I, I, I do. And I use the B Corp in my, in my classes. I, I find so far B Corp very uh, right, reliable. I mean, we have to keep an eye on things. We have to trust that they're trying. I mean, you know, FSC and MSC, um, you know, for ten has tended to water down their priorities, you know, sustainable forest and sustainable marine. But if something, of course, we're always going to find imperfection in anything. But as long as B Corps is trying and implementing a number of demands on the companies to get the B Corps certification that other companies aren't even thinking of, then at this point, it's good enough for me. Yes, that's my well it's it's great to have a third party certification yes. system in place so for example yeah. you you mentioned about the forestry certification right fsg, like, yeah. FSG. um we don't have many other things which are checking for sustainability you know yeah, so you yeah, if yeah. you have something like b core or something like the forest certification or you know organic or fair trade you you have to trust something yeah and, and keep an eye on it yeah 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 definitely I agree. yeah um, you have experience teaching in India and then, of course, teaching in Japan and Are China. There, and China. OK. <laughs> Are there commonalities that you're seeing in your experience teaching in in Japan or have has each place had its own distinct kind of hurdles in terms of teaching environmental studies? Hurdles um... or 
I would some say to sum up things, uh, there's or... less, yeah, there's less, there ha things are changing quickly. For years, I've been, you know, environmental education. Students would say to me, Chris, why are we always, you know, studying about the environment? I care about homelessness, maybe, or poverty, but, you know, the environment. And then, of course, I evolved it back then into trying to show that they there's no the, the state of the society depends on the state of its environment essentially and so there was another connection i started making culturally i found that the chinese students i had um in china years ago of uh, just grasping for knowledge and information um, they're, they consume it, they're ready and to talk and share and get involved. Indian students are so vibrant and enthusiastic about everything. You know, India is, as anybody who's been there is, <laughs> I mean, the complete opposite of Japan, which is why I love it and, and always want to escape from it every time I go back. Um, yes, I would just say the receptivity, the in, the um, acceptance, the ingenuity, the the quickness. I mean, the environment in India has. I mean, I know it's a large country has the highest number of environmental groups in the world, and people are very change happens very very quick in India. Um, so yeah, island countries, as we know, I grew up in England slow to change, think that the way they're doing things is the way to do it, much less receptive to change. I mean, we know that with everything in Japan, change is slow. And maybe formally, in my opinion, that was good. They had a lot of things down, but then they started getting into this myth that the West is best and following all this non western way that doesn't fit in at all with their culture and all they have that the i always tell my students you are only two generations separated from such wisdom we have that wisdom in our some of our countries in the indigenous people the senjumin people but we maybe white people are removed by a number of generations from that wisdom so you're so lucky that's why looking back moving forward you know yeah i i love that about um talking to people who are um perpetuating traditional japanese craft or artisanship because they're doing it in a harder way in terms of what we think of in our modern world but yeah. what they're doing is so valuable in terms of uh perpetuating culture but also it's a beautiful art oh yeah yeah and it's it's something that in in many ways we need to maintain and revert back to a lot of exactly. solutions like you say are are available even 20 years ago yeah, uh, I, we were yeah. using plastic that yeah. plastic problem is only about 20 30 years old exactly <laughs> Yeah. So if we just look beyond that, what were we using before? Bamboo, wood, fantastic. Let's yeah. do that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to go back. I always tell my students, uh, you know, that stopping, you know, my the word I tell them and I dislike, one of the words dislike the most in Japanese is benri. Uh, you know, benri meaning convenient. So one of the changes has to be, oh, my bird came back uh, is replacing benry with beauty you know and that's why i can live here because in this incredible area near lake biwa to live here the land and the old houses are phenomenally cheap because it's not benry anywhere else in the world there would be millionaires owning private beaches and big houses in this area only 35 minutes by local train from kyoto so it's and there's the nearest convenience store is three kilometers away the nearest town is uh six kilometers away which is two stops or five minutes by train people don't want to live here um because benry has become such a an important word yeah 
Yeah, I think during um, coronavirus, I don't know if you feel this way, but I see more interest in people working from home. So then they're thinking, well, maybe I want to live in the rural area if I can and work from home to be around na more natural environments. So there's a lot more appeal now. Exactly. And I don't think it's just because of the coronavirus, but I, it has heightened it up. I tell my, you know, I always say that everything that's happening in Japan has already happened in, in every, all the good things, uh, gender, you know, ch uh, gay marriage, uh, LGBT acceptance, um, or, you know, hopefully, sorry if I'm, maybe, no, hopefully, uh, marijuana legalization, you know, all these things were imposed on Japan. I mean, Asa, marijuana used to be, is a sacred plant, you know, for the Shinto shrines. Samurai used to have, it was very accepted and common for samurai to have uh, young gay male lovers, you know. So all of these things were implanted on Japan. And that's one of the reasons also why they changed, because it wasn't an indigenous change anyway. It was implanted by the very country that is now, well, Europe, of course, is way ahead of the United States. Most, most Japanese don't know how linked uh, the strong Christianity of America is with stopping any uh, loss of patriarchal uh, white uh, Christian dominance. Um, so, yeah, the changes are always the same all over the world as the westernization reaches the countries. And that's not always bad, of course. I mean, it's often good, you know, but it also holds many um changes or returns to how it was it holds it up it stops it gets in the way uh, we have a interesting comment from dan a review of the state of britain's native woods and trees has found only seven percent are in good condition woodland yeah. trust article that came out yesterday and i i noticed you I you that. were talking about the mangroves when you were in Okinawa, mangroves are so important. Yeah. We need to keep watch on what's happening with our trees and forests, definitely. Well, mangroves especially, I think, I, uh, thank you for giving me a chance to mention that briefly. Um, most people don't know, but most of the barbecue, uh, most of the charcoal that is used in Japan and other countries, but especially Japan for barbecues, is from the mangroves in Indonesia. And that makes me... So all you have to do is look on the bag and you'll see made in Indonesia. Um, and yet charcoal making was a sustainable indigenous uh, craft in Japan for hundreds of hundreds of years. And if anybody knows um, Noto uh, Hanto, that is one was one of the centers. And young, if you look on YouTube or yeah, you can find a number of young mainly young men are now moving back and taking up that um, that skill again. And you can buy it. And as usual, it's more expensive, but it burns. I'm not really into barbecues because I don't eat meat, but we did buy it for, for just basically the habit and my children like. Um, it burns for longer and it's basically warmer. It's a great quality and it's not destroying beautiful, beautiful mangroves, which, of course, like in many countries, mangroves and um, uh, wetland, uh, coastal wetlands and lake wetlands were seen as a waste of space and filled in, um, whereas actually, of course, as always, they're protecting us from tsunami, from encroachment of uh, flooding. So, yeah, I... I love mangroves and uh, anybody who does barbecues, please look on the bag before you uh, unknowingly cook your food on mangroves. Yeah, that's it's so scary to me um, to whenever I come across the research about how much plastic pollution Japan is exporting and how much beautiful rainforest wood we are importing to Japan. And this is something that we need to be more aware of and think about maintaining and thinning out our own forests in Japan more and importing less wood 
and uh, encouraging less palm oil in uh, Asian countries where mm. they really need to maintain the rainforest that they have. Uh, we have uh, uh, Arborist coming to talk to us at the end of the month. Really excited to talk to him, Japanese Arborist. Uh, there is nice. beautiful forests and beautiful trees in Japan, but very little resource and money and training is going into taking care of the forest here. And so much effort is, is just importing. Yeah, yeah. Most of the forests are not really, you know, I mean, you can see, I don't know if you can see, but this is, um, Hira mountain. And I was always fascinated when I moved here, because when you look from here, you can see the one area, if you can see is uh, all different shades. And then there is the area that is all dark green. And most people don't know, but you know, cause they don't see that. But when you look, you can always know which is planted forest and which is uh, natural forest. But, um, you know, I used to take my students years ago, back in 1991, Ichinense, we would go into the forest near the Daigaku. They'd have to take off their shoes, which they hated, walking bare feet. But on the way back, they loved it. And they wrote their essays. I haven't done that since I was a child. And we'd spend the first 25 minutes walking through planted forest. I didn't say anything. And they'd have to count the colors of green and uh, count the sounds they heard. And then we'd stop and we'd share. And then little known to them, the next period was walking into the natural forest and again doing the same activity. And then we came back, I walked back, and they wrote their saying, of course, without me really saying anything, they became very clear about uh, the differences between the silence and the monotony and the sameness. Uh, and of course, that's why you know, bears and deer and monkeys are coming down to these areas because we, there's no food, I know, you know, in the Sugi and Hinoki forest for them. So, of course, they're coming down to, uh, I mean, that was the excuse that three years ago, Nokio gave farmers money, paid them to put up these awful steel fences. And, of course, about a third of the farmers did that because they could make a couple of hundred thousand yen for doing it through Nokio and the steel companies. But um, two thirds, thankfully, of the farmers didn't do it. And um, yeah, that was a great thing, uh, you know, to that. But we don't have monkeys and deers coming into the rice fields. Uh, they do come a little bit in the vegetables. Sadly, John Spiri, who's up on the very near the mountain, he gets everything coming, bears. Yeah, and, when I whoa. talked to John Spiri, he had <laughs> set up a camera in yes. his backyard, yes. and he saw a bear destroy his beehive. A beehive, he saw yeah. deer, coyotes, uh, yeah. wild boar, all sorts Ferrets, of things. Amazing. His chickens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a different well, world up there. Oh, it's crazy. So we just have a few minutes left. Um, okay. If somebody is thinking about doing environmental education with their students, is there any advice that you could give for the last few minutes? Yeah, um, just set up, uh, probably most teachers doing it, set up activities that are connected to their lives. Uh, don't, don't tell, show. Um, well, I just told... <laughs> Don't tell show. Um, allow them to be creative, uh, to look around their own environment. Don't make it rain. I mean, right away, rainforest in South America or, you know, get them to go out for a walk and to describe. One of the wonderful things I start my class off is they go out and they have to come bring back five pictures of what they think is beautiful and five pictures of what they think is ugly no discussion about what is beautiful, and then they show it to their group and they tell them why they think it's beautiful, ugly. Start with their surroundings. Get them to look at what they see every day. Try to give them a different approach, a different way to look at it, and then start connecting what they discovered locally in any way you did. Green map, uh, using a green map to give directions. That's another activity I've been doing for years where they have to give each other directions in class. Um, go down Shijo, turn left, um, but it's using a green map of, of Kyoto. So 
basically, yeah, get them. To, yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, that's that's great advice. I love that. Mm. What is what is beautiful to you and what is ugly? Mm. Um, I sometimes do that in sustainable tourism teaching or consulting. Like think about what do you want to see when you travel abroad? Where do you want to spend time? when you travel abroad right. not just go quickly and take a photo not just the famous but where do you really enjoy spending time when you travel right. and the answers are always very different it's very interesting uh -huh. and so of course that is the kind of thing and usually it's a natural spot or Yes, always. a relaxing spot with very interesting local people yes. or a culturally significant spot where they can enjoy the culture. Mm. And so isn't that what we need to promote in tourism in Japan, too? You know, right. so it's such a, a great counterpoint in that way. Students love to learn, uh, hear about woofing, willing workers on uh, worldwide farms. I mean, the chance for them to know that they can go somewhere for free and have free food and, and as long as working. So woofing and then Chuck's um, Chuck's group that he does, you know, with people coming in to volunteer on his farms. That's another organization. I forget the name. But yeah, giving them a chance to know about these things. Wonderful gift we can give them in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, spend some time doing a cleanup. Spend some time um, at a farm, learning how to organic farm. Uh, spending time in the forest. These are all great ways to really get students to connect on their own to their environment and what they're buying, what they're seeing. And that's really the only way forward for education, don't you think? I definitely do. And of course, once all they need to do is be given the chance to do it. Many of them are not going to do it by themselves, except that they're on holiday when they're allowed to do it. Um, I invite my students out here to Lake Biwa. Ian does the same. And I mean, you know, they become they become who they are uh, in the in the space, in the natural space. And hopefully it will open up a new direction for them um and you know they'll you know they'll work on it you know it, it's just giving our students the gift of alternatives that exist and then letting them decide if it's something that suits them if they get enjoyment out of it or not i don't look for results in my classes i just think we're just planting the seeds and some of the seeds will grow and some uh, and some of them slowly some of them quickly and some of them not at all it's just the way it goes but you know it doesn't it and also young people in japan now in my university classes they are last seven eight nine years they're really really changing so talk about hope i feel a lot of positive they're ready to look back and move forward i think see a lot of nodding heads when i talk about satoyama or nature or senjumi and you can tell they're kind of yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love that about teaching uh, university students in Japan is often when you're talking about environmentalism, you can often link it to the Edo period or yeah. what their grandparents used to do. Yes. And how can we compare the climate impact of what your grandparents were doing and what you're doing? And so it's, sure. it's not that far. Like you say, it's only a couple generations back. Yeah, many of them are still connected with their grandparents. You know, um, if it's not an extended family, their grandparents are living out in the countryside and they're getting their takyu bin of uh, organic or semi-organic vegetables all the time. You know, takyu bin sending vegetables. It's such a common thing here. So essentially, it's not like you're introducing something completely unknown to them. You know, they, you know, they go out to visit their grandparents at Obon or at uh, Oshogatsu. So... The, the, the essence is there yeah you yeah. just have to uh, water it a little bit i think <laughs> yeah definitely uh chuck uh thank you for that he said work away is also yes, a great away. organization thank work you, away yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you so much yeah. uh thank you so much chris that was wonderful yeah. it's thank been you a so joy. much it's been a pleasure yeah. really glad i could meet you finally and that to know that j stands for joy 
you are certainly bringing a lot of joy to a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm I'm doing my best. It Good. it cheers me up, and it's so informative <laughs> and wonderful for me. Thank you. So I'm just happy to share it with a wider audience. Thank wonderful you for sharing. Joy. You're a natural. Yeah. Arigato. Thank you very Thank you. much. Arigato. Okay. Uh, tomorrow, nine o'clock, we're talking with Lauren Shannon about uh, new ideas for the future of travel and food tourism tomorrow at 9 a.m. So please join us then. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Okay. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel. Patreon, buy me a coffee, coffee or haps. Have a great day.